How does a girl born into a militantly Muslim nation like Iran find Christ as Savior? How is she then perceived by her family, her culture? And how do you get discipled in a land where owning or distributing Bibles is illegal? Join us for a truly epic story. That's next. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book. Our team joins you every week for a one-hour flyover of the Middle East. Leading that team, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and in the control room, Dan Anderson. And now that you're here, well, you're part of that team, too. And because you're part of that team, maybe you wonder, how do I share the gospel with my Jewish friend? It's a good question that many people ask, and the question recognizes the fact that there really is a need for a sensitive approach to sharing with Jewish people. Right, Charlie? That's right, John. And that's why our friends at Life and Messiah want to help answer that question. They put together a series of helpful articles on how you can share the good news with Jewish people around you. You'll learn about Jewish cultural sensitivities, how anti-Semitism affects Jewish evangelism, the importance of Messianic prophecy, and more. To access the articles, visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. You will receive the articles to equip you with practical ways to share the good news with Jewish people around you or online. Again, click on the Moody Radio icon at lifeinmessiah.org. Well, last week, the International Court of Justice issued its ruling on the charge that Israel is committing genocide in its war against Hamas. What did the court decide and what happens next? Well, the decision basically told Israel to prevent genocide but didn't order an end to the war with Hamas. The court said there was plausibility to South Africa's claims and that some of Israel's actions could potentially fall within the terms of the Genocide Convention. But they didn't take the action actually sought by South Africa, which was to order an immediate and unilateral ceasefire. And they didn't use the word desist in any of the rulings, which would have suggested they were convinced genocide was actively taking place. Now, they also issued a statement calling for the immediate and unconditional release of the hostages still being held. In response to the ruling, the United States said it believes the allegations of genocide are unfounded, and the UK said it has considerable concerns with the ruling. Now, in terms of what happens next, Israel has 30 days to address the concerns raised by the court and to make sure sufficient aid is making its way into Gaza. At the same time, they can also continue to push forward against Hamas. Now, the court could take months to render a final decision, so this drama will continue to play out for some time. But basically, Israel came out as well as could be expected, given the PR war being waged against them right now. Charlie, had the verdict been otherwise, what does South Africa get out of this other than a certain smug standing, you know, amongst other nations of the world? Uh, that's it. And South Africa was hoping to lead the nations of the world basically to ostracize and uh, condemn Israel. So it could have been very difficult on Israel uh, in terms of uh, facing other nations, but thankfully that didn't happen. Well, the war in Gaza continues as Israeli forces tighten their grip on the southern part of the area. What has been happening, Charlie, and is there any sign of an end to the conflict or a reduction in the tension? Well, a number of proposals have been offered to release the hostages and end the fighting, but so far, no agreement's been reached. Most involve a temporary ceasefire, followed by a staged release of both hostages and some terrorists in Israeli prisons. Some suggest this could then be followed by a permanent ceasefire and, eventually, the establishment of a Palestinian state. A temporary ceasefire and hostage release might be possible, but there are several problems in trying to get an agreement on a long-term solution. 
Hamas's leadership has said it will not recognize Israel or agree to a peace treaty with them. And Israel has said it won't allow Hamas to remain in control of Gaza or be part of any future Palestinian government. And Netanyahu is even concerned about having a Palestinian state at some point. Israel's also lost faith in the Palestinian Authority and its leadership. Meanwhile, the U.S. and a number of other countries temporarily halted funding to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for the Palestinian Refugees when it was discovered that several workers participated in the October 7 Hamas attack. While Israel's fight with Hamas continues, it also has its eyes fixed on Hezbollah to the north. Israel has doubled the number of troops stationed along the northern border and completed training exercises for them, focusing on urban warfare and fighting in winter weather conditions. The standoff up there continues, and the hope is that the troop buildup, the strong response to Hezbollah's attacks, and the example of what happened to Hamas in Gaza will cause Hezbollah to back off on their threats. Israel's goal is to safely allow those Israelis from the north who've been displaced to return home, hopefully without having to launch another war against Hezbollah. Charlie, back to this issue of the hostages. How likely is it that the real issue is so many of them are either dead or questionable that were that to come to surface, uh, this would be a a real problem for Hamas and for the whole situation? Uh, I think the real issue for Hamas, they, they, they don't care what Israel thinks. Their main goal is to keep those hostages as long as possible because the hostages are what are keeping Israel from trying to go after the leadership. Uh, They know the leadership is surrounded by hostages, and whatever hostages are alive will probably be killed at that point. So they're the bargaining chip, and Hamas is going to keep them around as long as possible. Certainly, uh, when the rest of the hostages are released, uh, additional information on the atrocities committed by Hamas will come out. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book. Our opening segment brings you current events from the Middle East. Our host, Charlie Dyer, I'm John Geiger. While the world has been focused on Israel, Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis, another potential conflict is beginning to unfold in Syria and Iraq as the U.S. explores removing its forces from the region. What exactly is happening and why? Yeah, just about the time we say, man, it can't get any worse. It does. Uh, This story illustrates the complexity of the Middle East and the danger of unintended consequences. There have been more than 150 attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria since October 7. And last weekend, a drone attack on U.S. forces in the northern tip of Jordan killed several soldiers and wounded many others. The drones were launched by Iranian-backed forces in either Iraq or Syria. Prior to this attack, we had already started discussions with Iraq on the phased reduction of forces from that country. Currently, we have about 2,500 troops still in Iraq, helping to prevent a resurgence of ISIS. The situation in Syria and Jordan is more complex. Uh, We have 900 troops in Syria helping to contain a still ongoing threat from ISIS there, and another 3,000 in Jordan serving as advisors. Now, that might seem like a small number of troops in these countries, but they've helped stem the growth of both Shiite and Sunni fundamentalist groups. The problem is that both Iran and ISIS are working to strengthen their presence in those countries. In Syria alone, there there are still 10,000 battle-hardened ISIS militants detained in prisons, with an additional 50,000 women and children held in security camps. Hmm. And Iran continues to strengthen its Shiite allies in those countries to expand their reach toward the Mediterranean. So what happens if our forces leave? Likely we'll see a rapid growth of ISIS in Syria and Iraq, and possibly even Jordan, with Sunni Muslims turning to ISIS in their ongoing conflict against the Shiites and Alawites. 
and Iran will increase its support for its allies in the region. Now, if we're not careful, we could see a resurgence of ISIS in large swaths of Syria and Iraq, similar to the Taliban returning to power in Afghanistan when we pulled out, along with greater Iranian influence in that same area. Now, the U.S. could find itself embroiled in a conflict with both groups, and that's something President Biden wants to avoid as he heads into this presidential election campaign. How much of a grasp do you think U.S. foreign policymakers have on what you've just shared? I think they understand where these forces are, who they are. What they don't understand is what drives them religiously. They still think in terms of, of politics or economics, but this is a religious conflict, and that's what keeps it going for so long. The outpouring of aid from Christians to Israel following the October 7th Hamas attack has been remarkable, though some in Israel are concerned that the aid comes with missionary strings attached. What do they mean, and how should we respond? Now, the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews especially are very sensitive to missionary activity because of past activity where the church tried to force conversion on the Jews. More gentle approaches were soon followed by threats, intimidation, even physical violence, and that makes them nervous. Several news articles appeared raising questions about the motives of the different Christian groups offering aid. I was really excited to see the Jerusalem Post run a response article from a Messianic Jew. As he said in the article, faith comes from one's heart. It can't be purchased through bribes. And while acknowledging the concerns, he also made it clear that there are no strings attached to the aid he and his organization have been providing. He shares his faith with those who are interested, as is his right, but he doesn't force his faith on others, nor is it a requirement for them to receive help. That's a good approach. Now, in terms of what Christians have been doing, Samaritan's Purse donated 14 ambulances to replace the ones destroyed by Hamas. Each ambulance was named for a Magen David Adom medic killed in the conflict. They've also ordered an additional seven armored ambulances that should arrive later in the spring. Another Christian organization called Passages donated a half million dollars to help two of the devastated communities. I talked with Tom Doyle from Uncharted Ministries. They were able to donate funds to purchase an ambulance as well as an ambucycle, a medically equipped motor scooter. The bottom line, we do hope that our love will bring individuals to accept the forgiveness offered by Jesus. But are these Christian groups attaching strings to their gifts? Absolutely not. They're motivated by love for the Jewish people, and that's the way it should be. And that's a look at current events. Boy, have we got a conversation for you. A girl from Iran finds Jesus as Savior. You've got to stick around for that. And uh, tell a friend about this program, will you? Let them know about our website as well. Our podcast is there at thelandandthebook.org. How does a girl born into a militantly Muslim nation like Iran find Christ as Savior? How is she received by her family, her culture? What is that journey like? You're about to find out. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and before we embark on what I promise is a truly epic story, let's pause for just a moment and let's give some thought to how we can share Jesus creatively with a Muslim friend that we might know at work or in our neighborhood. Well, the moment has finally come. You have you have developed this friendship with your Muslim friend and you're having them over for dinner. What do you serve or not serve? With a question about menus, here's Stefano Fear with Call of Hope US. Well, I would always serve what I like, you know. I, I would serve them what I really think is a very good dinner. 
but I would not go for pork schnitzel. That's for sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, just don't do that. Just avoid pork. Uh, just avoid things you know they don't eat. Anything other than pork that's in a major no-no? Well... Everything, you know, liver, uh, all these things, even if it is beef or so, I would never go for that. Okay. Uh, try it with fish, try it with chicken, then they also know it's not pork. All right, so maybe chicken and fish are the safest. Absolutely. Okay, that's what's on the menu for your dinner with that Muslim <laughs> friend. Call of Hope's Stefan Ophir joins us here on The Land and the Book. Always very practical. Thank you. Marzia Amrizadeh is an Iranian-American whose testimony you need to hear. She's an author, public speaker, and activist for religious freedom. For more than a decade, she's traveled throughout the country and around the world to bring awareness about the ongoing human rights violations and persecution of women and religious minorities in Iran. For some time now, we've been looking forward to this conversation based on her book, A Love Journey with God. And that said, we want to welcome you to the land and the book, Marzia. Thank you so much, John, for having me on your program. It's an honor for me to share my story with your audience. Um, but about uh, my story, how I found Jesus yeah. in, in a very close country, the, um, ruling by terrorists. Yeah, it started from my childhood that I was seeking the Lord and I wanted to know the truth because in a country like Iran that they only teach about Islamic rules at schools and we don't have access to any other religious book and they are teaching us to follow the Islamic rules, brainwash children from a very young age. Now, Marzia, I'm confused because the home you grew up in you say, was not a strict Muslim family. Now, I guess I figured that pretty much everybody in Iran was a very devoted Muslim. Help me with that uh, misconception I've got, Marzia. No, that's not the truth. Um, a majority of Iranians are not radical Muslims. They don't believe in Islamic rules. Um, you may find Quran in their homes, but um, none of them even read those books. And it's just, it just starts with brainwashing people yeah. with Islamic rules and uh, make uh, very strict rules that, for example, if you ask millions of Iranians, they never read Quran because they make very strict rules in Islam that this book is holy and it's written in Arabic, which is not our language right. Farsi. So in most of homes, you see that book on the shelves and they don't know what is inside the book. And because of those strict rules that they create, they create fear in people yeah. not to disobey the Islamic rules. But most of the families, like my family, they are not devout Muslim. They never practice Islam. All right. Talk about your siblings and your life at home as a young girl. What was that like? My brothers were brainwashed at schools by the Islamic rules, even though we were not practicing Islam at home. But unfortunately, they were brainwashed um, that, you know, men always should control women and they are male dominated because they could see, you know, their friends around themselves, how they treat their sisters, their other women, and it affected them as well. That's why there was a big jealousy at home against me because of my father loved me so much from my childhood. And that created jealousy in them against me. And they mocked me, they bullied me most of the time. Yeah. Now, 
This is interesting because eventually you discovered that your mother was having an affair. Now, how did that impact your world? Yes, unfortunately, that's the longest story. But my father, you know, went through lots of difficulties and regarding his job and many other things happened that um, my mom, I discovered that she had an affair, which ended up to they got divorced when I was about 18, 19 Mm. years old. Today on The Land of the Book, we're talking with Marzia Emirazadeh on the, the issue of how she came to faith, meeting Jesus in Iran. As a young woman, you started dating a guy named Ali, but the police accused him of having a sexual relationship with you. Explain what happened to him. Actually, we were engaged and he was studying in another city at the university. Uh, he was in love with me and We loved each other, and they arrested him with other students. He was studying in one of the most religious cities in Iran. It's the center of Ayatollahs, and they hate students. They hate everyone who is intelligent. And he got arrested, and they charged him with assumption of he drank wine. And also, you know, at the same day that he got arrested, we were on the phone, and they forced him to arrange for me to come to arrest me. And he was just keep saying that she's my fiance, but they didn't believe him. And they were thinking that we are boyfriends and girlfriends, and they wanted him to arrange for me to be arrested as well. And for a month, he was disappeared. And later we realized that he was tortured brutally and they charged him with lies and They gave him 80 lashes, which was horrible and shocking to me to see his back when he returned to the city I was living. And yeah, I was witness to the brutality of this regime in many areas in my life. So people would ask, how in the world, in that context, you've got a a fiancé who was beaten half to death, you've got a, a, a home where you are facing friction, a mother who has an affair, a father who's a wreck. How did you come to faith in Jesus Christ in Iran? Praise God. God gave me some kind of discernment from my childhood that I could not believe what they were teaching us at schools regarding, you know, God. And I was so curious and keep asking questions, uh, especially at my theology classes, Because in Islam, they teach us that we have to pray namaz five times a day and just keep repeating Arabic words. And I had lots of questions why I have to speak to my God in Arabic instead of my native language, Farsi. If I talk to him in Farsi, the Mm -hmm. God who created this word is not able to understand me. Why should I bend in front of him? Why should I cover myself? whenever I wanted to talk to him, why at a specific times I'm allowed to talk to him. As a child, I could understand that there are lies in Islam and I couldn't accept it, but my questions made them mad at me by asking these questions. And they told me, if I want God to be satisfied with me, I need to follow the Islamic rules. That's why I couldn't accept that definition of God in Islam, which is all about punishment, not about love. And then I got curious and I started reading Quran and praying namaz. It was just for finding the truth. But after a while, I got exhausted and I got frustrated because I couldn't see any truth in this. And it was just keep repeating religious, Islamic religious rules. 
And it started with a dream that I shared in my book that God, for the first time, revealed his love and the true face of Islam to me. And Hmm. in that dream, it was about a white horse at the age of 17. Wait, 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 wait. You're, you're 17 years old and you're having a dream about a white horse. Yes. Okay, this is unusual for Americans, but uh, many have been made aware that in uh, Islamic countries, God does use dreams and visions. Yours was of a white horse. Go on, I've interrupted you. Yes, I had. It wasn't just that dream. I had many dreams, and there are other Muslim people who came to Christ through dreams and visions. And I always tell people, some Americans here ask me why we don't have that kind of dreams and visions, and I tell them, hey, just look, in a country like Iran, you can't find Bibles in any bookstores. There is no churches. So no one can stop God from approaching people. And in such a country, God reveal the truth to those who are thirsty through their visions and dreams. But in America, we have lots of churches. You can find Bibles anywhere. Yes. So that makes sense to me why God approached people through dreams and visions in countries like Iran. But Marcia, there's a big gap, though, between a white horse and knowing Jesus as the Savior, receiving him, acknowledging you're a sinner, believing he died on the cross for your sins. How did you get to that point? What was that moment like? Yeah, it was a journey to me because after that, a few years, it was after that, that one of my friends who has converted to Christianity, and I didn't know that, she shared her faith with me. She shared about Jesus, that he died on the cross for our sin. And imagine I got very curious because it was the first time I could hear that Jesus is the Son of God, because I believed at school they taught us that Jesus is only a prophet. And that's why I got curious, and I got Bible, and started reading and reading and learning about Christianity, learning about Jesus, which opened my eyes to many truths. But still, you know, I had doubts. I wasn't sure if Jesus is the truth or not. Mm -hmm. That's why I started praying, and I asked God, please reveal to me, if Jesus is the truth, you must show me, you must prove it to me, because I don't want to be misguided in this world that we have lots of religions, lots of faith. And then after that simple prayer, other miracles started happening. I had other visions, other dreams that I shared in my book, A Love Journey with God. At that time that I heard about Jesus, there was just one Assembly of God church but that Muslim people, people from Muslim background could attend in that church because it was during moderate presidents. But honestly, they just wanted to show they give more freedoms to people, which was lie. They had their intelligence office right in front of the church and they forced pastors later, I understood, they forced pastors to give the names of the Muslims who were coming to their church, because it was the first church, Armenian church, that the pastors would speak in Farsi. They forbidden for Armenians and Assyrians who born as a Christians to preach in Farsi. But that church decided to preach in Farsi. That's why that attracted more Muslims yeah. to come to that church, but the government forced them to give the names that uh, keep coming. So we could not go to that church every weekend. 
maybe, you know, every couple of months you could attend that church. But my first experience attending in that church was amazing because I could see that people were worshiping God in their own language, Farsi, instead of, you know, keep repeating nonsense, Arabic words. And it was in that church that I had the experience of healing. And as I mentioned, I could not go to that church. And after a few years, they even closed that church. And there is no building church in Iran that people can attend. There are only underground home churches. So let me uh, take you to the actual moment when you received Jesus. You've had a series of dreams. You've been to a church. At what point did you finally say, I now know Jesus as Savior? What was that moment for you? Honestly, after uh, receiving all those dreams and visions, after experiencing healing by Jesus, all those things, I started believing in Jesus, that Jesus is the truth. But still, you know, by reading Bible, I had many questions and about the Holy Spirit, I could not understand it. And that's why I asked God to show me the whole truth. And I told him, I don't want to have any doubts about Jesus. And I remember the day that really changed my life forever was the day that I was alone at my home and I was just praying to God. And suddenly the power of God was so strong on me and I couldn't stop it. And it was early in the morning after hours of worshiping him and seeing him that my mouth stopped worshiping. And after that, I repented because of my doubts and I told him that, You are my Savior, and I promise to follow Him for the rest of my life. And that has taken you on a remarkable journey. We're going to get into that and more in another conversation with Marzia Amirazadeh here on The Land and the Book. Thank you for your time. We're looking forward to part two in a future broadcast. Questions and answers from the Bible? Yep, that's all coming up next on The Land and the Book. We've got an appointment, you and I, an appointment with our host, Charlie Dyer, who's going to answer the questions that many of us are wondering about. I say many because when somebody emails a question to us, there are four or five or maybe four or five hundred who wonder the same thing. At least that's how it goes for me when I hear these questions. Charlie, your Bible is open. I see that smile on your face. You look pumped and ready to go. I'm ready, John. I love questions. Let's start with Andres. He says, could you give us a couple suggestions for a Bible atlas? Our family doesn't have one, and you probably have a few suggestions in mind. Yeah, I actually have three I can suggest. They're actually all on my shelf just above my desk uh, within easy reach. The first is the Moody Bible Atlas by Barry Beitzel, B-E-I-T-Z-E-L. Now, I understand a new edition is being developed, but the current edition, which is the one I use, is very helpful. The second recommendation is called the Zondervan Atlas of the Bible. There was an earlier edition called the NIV Atlas of the Bible, and either one of those is good. They were by Carl Rasmussen. Uh, It's very helpful. The third atlas is more compact, and it's far less expensive. It's by Carl Laney, and it's called the Concise Bible Atlas. It's a paperback edition, and I find it very helpful. Uh, But you can find information on all three on Amazon. All right, here's a question from Dorothy. In Revelation chapter 2, the phrase, return to your first love, always makes me wonder whether or not I love Jesus enough. Maybe it's because it's so difficult to measure love. So what would you say is a good understanding of this phrase? What does Jesus really want from his church and from me? 
I think the key there is understanding what's been happening historically in that church in Ephesus. You know, in Acts 21, Paul met with the elders of that church, and he, he told them it was an impending time of doctrinal error coming. In fact, he said people are going to come and distort truth in order to draw away disciples after them, so be on your guard. Well, later, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to deal with some of those very issues. In fact, he says in 1 Timothy 1.3, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay in Ephesus that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrine any longer. Well, apparently, Timothy was able to get the church turned around doctrinally, and that's why in Revelation 2, the commendation of the church is that they have worked hard, they've persevered, they've been unwilling to tolerate false teachers. Now, all that's important in understanding what Jesus was then saying and what he said next. The church had become so focused on being right theologically that they'd stopped focusing on why they were to be right. They were doctrinally sound, but they'd abandoned the love relationship with Jesus that had prompted them to want to know him better and to please him in the first place. So we all need to work on loving Jesus more. But the problem in Ephesus is they were so focused on being right that it had become more important than their relationship with Jesus. And it goes back to the two great commands stressed by Jesus. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus wanted the church in Ephesus to remain doctrinally sound, but also to focus on the love for him that prompted them to be faithful. All right, here's a follow-up then. What are some practical ways to grow in real love toward Jesus? How can we understand and experience his love for us even more? Well, you know, I answer this kind of in a practical sense. How do you fall in love with someone uh, here on earth, another human being, you know, a family member, a friend, or even that special someone uh, that we want to spend our lives with. What is it that helps us find a deep love in our heart for them? Well, we spend time together. We talk and listen to each other. We send texts or emails, or the old romantics might even write letters to each other. But as we share our lives together, the good times and the struggles, we find ourselves caring and loving for that person even more deeply. And I think that's what happens when it comes to Jesus. He's written to us in the Bible. That's uh, his his love letters to us, if you will. And uh, what pleases him is for us to read what he's written to us. Uh, he also wants to hear from us. We can talk to him and we do that in prayer. We can share our desires and our fears and our hopes and our dreams. And we can spend time with others in his family at church. You know, he said, where two or three are gathered, he's there in their midst. And Finally, even in the midst of the struggles of life, he uses them to help draw us closer to him as we discover the truth of promises like uh, Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Don't be afraid for I am with you. A relationship like that takes time to develop, but the more time we spend reading the Bible, praying, joining with others in worship, and then watching Jesus work in our life day by day, I think the more that happens, the more we fall in love with him. Sharon takes us to Job chapter 1, where it seems as if God cares what Satan and the demons think about God. She asks, why does God care about what Satan thinks of him? Also, in Job 2 verse 3, God says Satan incited him against Job. She says, I looked up the Hebrew definition and it reads to stimulate, entice, move, provoke. I'm lost as to what this means. It sounds like Satan is moving God in a certain direction. Your thoughts? Yeah, and I don't believe in the book that it's saying God cares what Satan or the demons think about him as if his, he's looking at his own reputation. In chapter 2, verse 3, where God says, you incited me against him, I think the idea is provoked or instigated. That's probably the better English word there. I think Satan was trying to push God into doing something that Satan was convinced would prove God to be wrong. And though it wasn't God who brought the calamity on Job, it was Satan. Yet God permitted Job to be harmed financially and emotionally and physically 
to demonstrate to Satan that Job worshiped God because of who God was, not because of what God gave to Job. Satan was trying to move God in a certain direction. I think like a chess master, he was trying to get God in checkmate by having Job finally turn and curse God. And Job's answer to his friends, you know, in 1315, I think that had to be a sour note with Satan. Job, who thought God was punishing him, says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Even though he was convinced God was punishing him in a case of mistaken identity, Job still refused to turn against God. And I think really the key is, is God worthy of being worshiped apart from what happens in our life? And God shows that Job indeed worshiped him in that sense. From the Old Testament to the New, Todd asks, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit in Ephesians 6, verse 18? Well, you know, the larger context there is uh, wearing God's armor as we engage in spiritual battle with Satan. And the goal is to be able to stand against Satan's spiritual onslaught. I see the sword of the Spirit and praying in the Spirit in that section being parallel. The Bible and prayer are the two offensive weapons we have against Satan. And both carry the full authority and power of God's Spirit. Now, that doesn't fully explain what it means to pray in the Spirit. I think some other passages can help. Uh, One is Jude 20, where Jude calls on his readers to pray in the Holy Spirit. And I don't think he's calling on them to speak in tongues, which is what some might suggest. I, I think he's telling them to pray from a heart indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit prompts us to pray and then prays along with us. That leads to the second passage, which is Romans 8, 26 and 27, which talk about the Holy Spirit praying along with us and interceding with God on our behalf. So I I think the idea is that praying in the Holy Spirit is praying under the Holy Spirit's control and guidance as he prompts us to pray, and then realizing the Holy Spirit prays along with us to guarantee that what we're asking is being presented before God the Father in a way that will make it effective. It's praying in his power and under his guidance. Well, we've got a couple of more questions about Job from another listener. We'll see what we can get in to today's segment. Job 6.10 says, But it is still my consolation, and I rejoice in unsparing pain, that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. To what does it refer at the beginning of the verse? Is it his grief and calamity from verse 2, or could it refer to Job's desire that God would crush him in verse 9? Yeah, I think that it, and it's in the New American Standard version of Job 6.10, actually refers to the last phrase of the verse. That is, his consolation through all the struggle is that he had not denied the words of the Holy One. Job hadn't abandoned or rejected God's word or commands concerning what's right and wrong. It's another way for Job to declare his innocence. In verses 8 and 9, Job wished that God would take his life and end his suffering. The difficulty I see in verse 10 is that word, but, at the very beginning. It's actually a Hebrew letter, vav, which is normally translated and. However, it's a simple conjunction, can be translated several different ways. And in this case, I think the NIV might actually provide a better understanding of the way the, that vav should be translated. They translate it as then. Then I would still have this consolation, my joy and unrelenting pain, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. They translate that word there as then, and then they bracket the second line to show it's expressing essentially the same thought as the first. They then have the third line finish the thought. So Job's consolation, Job's joy was knowing that he had died without denying or turning against God's word. All right, one last Job question. How or why was Job so special and so close to God? Does the book of Job ever mention the Holy Spirit coming on Job? Yeah, we don't know what made Job so special. You know, it's possible he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but there's nothing in the book that suggests that's the case. And prior to the start of the church age, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was temporary. 
is usually given by God to accomplish specific tasks like the wisdom to reign as king. If Job was just a, quote, normal believer, then his faith is all the more remarkable. The description of him in one one is a man who was blameless and upright, who feared God, who turned away from evil. And that's absolutely amazing. You know, we would all like that to be a description of our own lives, and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I believe it's simply telling us that Job was one of the most remarkable and godly men who has ever lived. Hey, you've got a question, I bet, as you peruse the pages of Scripture in your own personal Bible study. What do you do with that question? Our recommendation, email it to Charlie. Here's how you connect. The Land and the Book at Moody.edu. The Land and the Book at Moody.edu. One last question for you as you listen. Are you taking advantage of our podcast? It's available at our website, thelandandthebook.org, and it's a great way to share this ministry with a friend who doesn't live anywhere near a radio station that carries the program. So check out the podcast at our website. It's thelandandthebook.org. Charlie Dyer's devotional is next. Stick around for more. Like any language, the English language is filled with fascinating expressions, sayings, bits of wisdom, tidbits, things that get passed down from generation to generation. Among those, the curious slogan or expression, close but no cigar. Hi, I'm John Geiger. You're listening to The Land and the Book. And Charlie, that is somehow connected to your devotional today? It's a vital part of my devotional. Okay. I'm looking forward to seeing how you connect all that after we enjoy this testimony from an Israel traveler who has this impression for you and me. Hi, I'm Kathleen, and I have just thoroughly enjoyed this trip. It has been just wonderful. And in our home church, we enjoy worship, but I have not experienced worship like I did on the Sea of Galilee. It was just a closeness to the Lord that I never would have believed possible. And I thank you for that. This has been a wonderful experience, and I don't think I'll ever read Scripture in the same way again, because by being on this tour and with this group and with Charlie leading us, it's a wonderful experience to be standing in the places opening up the scripture, having Charlie read us the scripture, and then his explanation of the scripture, to just really make it come alive and become more real than just reading some words on a page of a book. And so it has really helped me to connect the land and the book. Close, but no cigar. I guess we're going to Isaiah chapter 10. Charlie, you are amazing. I'm looking forward to seeing how you connect all this. A few mental gymnastics as we get here, but it starts by growing up in northeastern Pennsylvania. You know, back then, summer was a series of festivals and carnivals. Each small town seemed to have a week-long event sponsored by the local volunteer fire department with rides, concession stands, and carnival booths where you could try your skill to win a prize. But the mother of all gatherings, at least in our area, was the Bloomsburg Fair in late September. Yet where else could a high school student see the world's tallest man, ride the different rides, sample all the latest gastronomical treats, and watch some fancy shows and performances? You know, that, that was uh, just an amazing time. But one of my favorite pastimes was trying out my skill at the different games that lined the midway. I guess I was too naive to realize that most of them were rigged, though one time I actually won a box of candy bars. 
Adding up all the money I spent on the Midway in those years, I probably ended up with the most expensive box of chocolates I ever bought. But I did learn an interesting expression while playing those games. As the wooden ring I tossed would slip off the stand holding the prize I was trying to corral, the carny would smile and say, Tough luck, kid. Close, but no cigar. I didn't smoke. I had no desire to win a cigar, but I learned what that expression meant. It came from earlier days at carnivals when the prizes being offered were often cigars, and the carny was saying the customer was very close to winning but had just missed the mark. There was no reward for the effort, but if he wanted to pay and try again, well, that was always an option. So what does that old memory from the fair have to do with today's devotional? Well, I want to take you to the northern edge of Jerusalem, where God said in effect to the king of Assyria, close, but no cigar. So follow me out onto the balcony of the Dan Jerusalem Hotel on Mount Scopus. The balcony is a great place to look out over Jerusalem. To our left is the Mount of Olives, and Just behind us is Hebrew University. The hotel and Hebrew University are located on Mount Scopus, but Mount Scopus is really just the northern extension of the Mount of Olives. In front of us, just about a mile away, you can spot the Temple Mount and Dome of the Rock with its golden dome shimmering in the afternoon sun. In Old Testament times, we would be standing in an area where the village of Nov or Nob was located. In 1 Samuel 21, David stopped at Nob when fleeing from Saul and received consecrated bread from a group of priests who were living there. But I want us to go forward in history another 300 years to the time of King Hezekiah, because Nob makes another appearance in the Bible at that time. Hezekiah had rebelled against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and the Assyrians were now on the march to put down that rebellion. Sennacherib had a brilliant master plan for attack. He divided his army into two segments to catch Jerusalem in a pincer movement. Part of his army moved south into the Shephelah, the low foothill southwest of Jerusalem. There they attacked the key cities of Judah like Lachish and Azekah. This blocked the avenue of escape south from Jerusalem. And it also stopped the Egyptians from being able to march north to rescue Hezekiah. This plan of attack is found in the cities described in Micah 1 and in 2 Kings 18 and Isaiah 36. But the second prong of Sennacherib's army marched down the center of the country toward Jerusalem from the north, sweeping up all the small towns in its path while blocking Jerusalem's way of escape in that direction. The list of towns taken by the Assyrians is described in Isaiah 10, 28-32. And the list is a who's who of towns north of Jerusalem. Let's follow a serious plan of attack as that prong of the army heads south. The first town listed is Aoth or Aot, which is another name for Ai or Ai, the town first captured by Joshua following his destruction of Jericho. Passing through Migron, they stop at Michmash, which is where they set up as a supply depot. Now, this was once the base of operation for King Saul, which was later captured by the Philistines, only to be recaptured in a daring attack by Jonathan and his armor bearer. Both towns are just over five miles north of Jerusalem. Crossing over the pass, a strategic crossing point I talked about a few months ago, the Assyrian army paused to set up camp at Geba, immediately to the south. Isaiah then notes that Ramah trembled. Well, that makes perfect sense because just two miles west along the main road from Geba was the strategic crossing point of Ramah. Ramah guarded the front door to Jerusalem. The main north-south road in and out of Jerusalem passed through Ramah. 
And so did the main east-west road that stretched from the International Highway down by the coast all the way over to Jericho, the Jordan Valley, and ultimately the King's Highway in the hills of modern Jordan. Capturing Rama effectively locked the door on anyone from Jerusalem escaping to the north, west, or east. About a century after David, and almost 200 years before Hezekiah, Basha, king of Israel, fortified Ramah in his war against King Asa of Judah. And the action so frightened Asa that he made a treaty with the king of Syria to get him to attack Israel to force Basha to abandon his plans. But now the king of Assyria has finished what Basha had started. The bars on the door slammed shut. But Sennacherib isn't finished. Two miles south is the town of Gibeah, the capital of Israel during the time of King Saul. But now Gibeah of Saul flees. The people abandon the town in panic, running toward Jerusalem. Several other small villages nearby quickly empty of their inhabitants, including the inhabitants of Anatoth. Now, if that sounds familiar, that was the city assigned to the priests and later became the hometown of Jeremiah the prophet. It's less than two miles east of Gibeah and less than two miles from where we're now standing. And that leads us to this hotel balcony near the site of ancient Nob. Isaiah writes, This day they will halt at Nob. They will shake their fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion at the hill of Jerusalem. Just a mile away from Jerusalem, the temple of Solomon clearly visible in the distance. But all King Sennacherib can do is shake his fist at Jerusalem. As God promised to Hezekiah through Isaiah, the king of Assyria will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city. Or as one of the carnival barkers might say, close, but no cigar. So what happened? The Bible gives the answer. The angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. With victory seemingly in sight, God stepped in to knock the wooden ring off the peg and force King Sennacherib to head home. So what can we take with us from this view of Jerusalem at the site of ancient Nob? I think this spot's a great reminder that God is in complete control in spite of our circumstances. No matter what's happening in your life, no matter how great the problems you're facing, no matter how insurmountable the odds might seem, God is still in control. Satan and his allies can appear to be close to victory, but in the end, they will not win. Close, but no cigar. Just remember, no matter how strong the foe may appear, don't give up, look up. <laughs> that is just great, Charlie. And I'm guessing there are a whole lot of people that uh, found that encouraging, as I did. Appreciate you digging into that story. Close, but no cigar. It's available to listen to again at our website, thelandandthebook.org. You'll find information about today's guest, past programs, and more, thelandandthebook.org. Our time is gone, but we want to thank you for making time for The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.